0: christina rea and welcome to breaking out of breaking in a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the hollywood game or
1: at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are breaking down works that shaped us. If you'd like to suggest an upcoming topic, send us a compliment, ask us a question, or otherwise get in touch. You can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at Breaking Pod, or via email, breakingoutofbreakinginpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if you want deeper dives into everything we cover on this podcast, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash BreakingOutPod. So, Christina... What works shaped you? Because you have not listed anything here, so it's a total (laughs) mystery to me.
0: Well, I wrote some stuff down on a notebook, but honestly, Brie, I mean, my list is endless. And the fact that yours is so short, I'm just like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I mean,
1: I figured I'd probably think of other things as we talked, but this is definitely because like when I was a kid, I and I even to this day, I am a re-reader or a re-watcher. Like I I find something that I love and then I just dig it into the ground (laughs) watching (laughs) it and reading it and over and over and over again until like I fully memorized it. So it's not to say that I was not a broad reader and viewer, but certainly as like an early budding author, a b- early budding filmmaker, there were there's just a handful of things that I can pretty easily mm. say, Oh, yep, yeah, that shaped me.
0: It's interesting. I mean, I am also a rewatcher, but I just like I was a latchkey kid. I mean, I grew up in front of the TV. And so I just watched everything. And yeah,
1: that's that's not my <laughs> experience. I couldn't be I physically couldn't be a latchkey kid just because of like, it was we were too far out. Like Mm -hmm. my parents had to drive us to everything, pick us up. So like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we I didn't as a kid, I didn't watch a lot of TV. And I think we talked about that a little bit. But like we we saw movies, you know, we watched TV. But like once I once I could read, I mostly just read. Mm -hmm. Um, But like there weren't, you know, there there was only so many books on the shelf at my teacher's classrooms. So I read all of them. And then I would reread the ones that I liked because they didn't get new ones. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I didn't watch a lot as a kid. And I don't think that much of TV actually shaped me until much later on.
0: TV really shaped me. I feel like when I was a kid kid, like in elementary school, I loved TV that was meant for teenagers. Like I was watching all the teen dramas of that time. Sure. I've lived for WB, you know, like the WB is probably like a huge, just like a general shaper of me uh, across the board. But then by the time I got to be a teenager, I was like much more interested in movies and exploring like old film. And I wasn't really watching the content that was made for me. Like just for comparison, I, I could talk to you about, you know, Dawson's Creek until like the end of time, but I could not talk to you about One Tree Hill or like the other teen type shows of my actual high school years. And so when I was thinking about what really shaped me, the WB is a big one. Um, And specifically I would say Kevin Williamson, who's a writer. I did not realize until I was older how much his writing was just like very much there in my formative years in drastically different genres because he is both the screenwriter of Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer and other like teen slashery type movies um, for anyone who's like a real nineties kid. The movie, like Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which is, uh, has Helen Mirren in it very randomly. But then also, he created Dawson's Creek. He's the creator oh, of Dawson's wow. Creek. So, like, <laughs> so it's very drastically different. And just his writing, his, like, he's, I would say he's very similar to Joss Whedon in the sense that there was a lot of, like, meta banter in his writing. And the characters spoke like adults when they were t- kids. You know, that's, like, a common thing. But he's, like, as far as I know, not the asshole that Joss Whedon is. Um, sure. He's a gay man, and like I've heard nothing problematic about him, though he's still very much a white man.
1: Yeah, I will say this is going to be a dangerous episode, because as soon as we make it like known the types of people that we like, so- at least a handful of them are going to get canceled. I mean, some of, of the course. people that I'm going to talk about have already been canceled. Yeah, so it's I mean, like- same. <laughs> but, we can't but like I think it's important to contextualize like you can't change the work that shaped yeah, you. you. Like, can, you can. I, I know tons of like male comedians who grew up on Woody Allen movies and like consider that a formative to their comedy stylings and like mm-hmm. writing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean that it is what it is (laughs) like you can't change that you can just you know be thoughtful about looking back to them and about making sure that you don't make the same mistakes
0: yeah and we're gonna do an episode I think on kind of this topic of like reflecting on our problematic favorites yeah but this is more
1: just like a thesis we know some of these people are problematic I think both of us consider Buffy to be fairly formative yeah and you know (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was the sort. Yeah. So the point I was making is like for a long time, Joss Whedon was a reference point for me because Same. Buffy was such an influence on me. I watched it when it was first on TV when I was like oh, wow. eight or nine. And then I became a really, really big fan when I was a teenager with reruns and I like actually appreciated The writing and everything and it wasn't just like a fun show about a vampire slayer and for a long time he was like a reference point for what influenced my own style of writing and lately I've been like I don't just like I don't want to write that anymore I don't want to put his name down anymore even though it's true and then I was like well I mean Scream is one of my favorite movies it's like the movie that made me want to make slashers it's the movie that made me want to go back and watch all the original slashers that like you know the 90s kind of made a like comeback for and then I was like oh and he also created Dawson's Creek which like is not at all what I write but it like undeniably influenced me and it features like forever boyfriend Pacey Witter <laughs> which like you don't get because you're not a Dawson's Creek head uh but our listeners yeah I've never I have never no seen doubt Dawson's will.
1: Creek the most dawsons creek that i i have seen is not actually dawsons creek it's i watched uh don't trust the bee in apartment 23 mm-hmm. and <laughs> um james Week. yeah james whatever he, he's yeah. in it as canonically himself and yeah. so they reference dawsons creek a lot <laughs> And, like, I didn't get any of the references, but it seemed funny.
0: (laughs) I mean, I can't say that I recommend it because without the nostalgia, it's, like, you know, it's a soap. But I will say the one thing I really liked about Dawson's Creek is that it focused on, like, lower middle class people in, like, a small town as opposed to, like, rich people, which is just, like, the Like a Gossip Girl. Yeah, like Gossip Girl and the OC. And even before it, 90210, like, it was all these just, like, fantasy worlds, whereas, like... Joey Potter was working two jobs because her one of her her dad was in prison and her mom was dead and her sister was trying to pay the bills and like raise her on her own and like I related to that as also sure. like a brainy girl who had to work at a young age and had a single parent and all that. So anyway, like there there's a there's a lot of good stuff within a show that's still, like, a teen soap.
1: No, I think I think it's a valuable insight that, like, something that you connected to was a story not just in, like, the fantasy world of rich people. Right. And, like, that is influential because I, I, from what I've seen of your work, you do not seem to be all that interested in the fantasy world of rich people. And yeah. I think that that's something that a lot of people can relate to because, like, yeah, as, you know, the, go- like, one thing that I could never get around with Gossip Girl, which I watched much later, I was in my 20s and I was actually living in New York at the time, is mm-hmm. that, like, all of them are, like, 14 years old but like the (laughs) primary setting outside of their school and homes is like bars because like they're so rich it doesn't matter and i'm like this i this does not i maybe this happens this Mm -hmm. does not read as true for me so this like i i approach it the same way that i approach like a space travel show you know yeah and like that's fine but like i feel like rich people drama is a genre (laughs) (laughs) that i'm not overly interested in to be honest like that's why i can't watch succession even though everyone's like it's amazing like i don't i'm not interested in that I'm yeah. not interested in watching rich and they're like, well, but they get their comeuppance. I'm like, yeah, but they're still rich the whole show, right? So like, do they? I don't yeah. want to watch rich people be bad. I can go to Twitter for that. I can totally. go to Elon Musk's Twitter Real feed world. if exactly. I want to see rich people being bad and people dunking on them. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I do not have a lack of that in my life. I would love to totally. see something that reflects reality. And it doesn't mean that like it can't be soapy and it can't be dramatic. Mm-hmm. But like, hey, choose a different setting.
0: Yeah. I also should say Dawson's Creek is incredibly relevant because Dawson is an aspiring filmmaker. And so like 10-year-old me was kind of like, that's a thing. Like that's a thing that someone could aspire to be. And he was like making movies with his friends. And I I rewatched it recently in quarantine. And I was like, I mean, he makes it look so much easier to just like, because at one point the entire town is helping him make his little movie. And People just – one of the characters is just rolling sound. He's like, knows how to be a sound person. He's got a wardrobe person. He's got, like, a prop master. I'm like, okay. I had none of – like, I don't even – I still don't have any of those things, you know. <laughs> um, but – that was a huge thing is that he loved movies and it's based on kevin williamson's own childhood and what's also interesting like just from a anecdotal thing is dawson is based on him and in real life he was a closeted teenager he's gay and dawson is just like such such an obnoxious entitled character but so many of his flaws would work if he was, like, self-hating <laughs> and sure. if all of those things, then, you know, he worked them out when he accepted himself. But because the network wouldn't let them make him gay,
1: sure. he's just,
0: like, the worst of, like, male entitlement. And it never really, like, sets itself straight. Uh, but... I kind of hated Dawson because he was so whiny and he and he was like oh poor me like my parents are getting divorced even though I live in this like big ass house and my mom works for a news station so I get all this free equipment and like I can make movies and he was always whining. Meanwhile his like two best friends Pacey had an abusive father and Joey was like poor as fuck and had to work and her mom was dead and her dad was in prison and like Dawson was just constantly fucking whining and so I resented the fact that people were like oh you want to make movies like Dawson and I was like (laughs) I was like no not like Dawson it's like yeah I want to make movies but not like him but it is it is so important because it's the first time I ever saw anyone like want to make movies and that being a thing and and yeah it's like undeniable that it it shaped me I I I started watching it when I was like nine and I wrote my first screenplay when I was nine, you know, like that's there's an obvious correlation there. Totally.
1: Yeah, I think my my earliest like true inspiration for stuff that I I want to do now is definitely like, you know, middle grade mystery. Mm-hmm. So like Nancy Drew, of course. And I don't know if you've experienced this. But like, I remember even at the time, I would try to read the Hardy Boys. Like once I was out of Nancy Drew books, I would try to go read the Hardy Boys books because like there's just such huge sections for both at the library. So mm-hmm. like you can get a lot of them. Hardy Boys were not as good. And Mm -hmm. like... (laughs) I you just think they were worse written. And I was like, well, screw this. I'll just go reread Nancy Drew again. <laughs> and I also loved uh, Cam Jensen and Encyclopedia Brown. Encyclopedia Brown, I didn't like as much just because it was more of like a puzzle book. And I enjoyed that. I I had an appreciation for it. And it made me a more discerning reader and viewer of mysteries because I kind of started to understand the mechanics of like, mm-hmm. you know, an unnoticed clue, I think is so vital to writing mm-hmm. um, mysteries. And like, it's something mm-hmm. that like my students who write mysteries, I'm like really harping on. I'm like- I think you need to go back to the outline phase because right now we know what all the clues are. So like, it's pretty easy to put the mystery together and that's not going to be satisfying. So, you know, like Encyclopedia Brown is obviously so good at that because the whole point is that it's just like a little short story puzzle where it gives you a lot of details and then Encyclopedia Brown solves the case and you have to like either figure it out yourself or like go to the back and look at the the key for it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really clever, but I definitely preferred Nancy Drew and Cam Jensen because it was more about the characters. And Mm -hmm. that was also something that was important to me is like the perspective of the young girl mystery solver was very interesting to me and I liked that they I liked the sort of integration of just like their day to day life and also these big high stakes cases that they were solving and I think that's also what appealed to me about Buffy many many years later because mm. I didn't watch it when it came out because I I am a huge fan of people who integrate like a really you know complicated high concept thing into like the day to day you know I like that Buffy has to go to high school and sometimes yeah. misses tests because she's right. fighting a vampire I like that you know, Nancy Drew had like boy drama, and right. then you know would every every single book would get knocked out at some point and like wake up in a mysterious dungeon. and I'm like, man, I wish I had Nancy Drew's life <laughs> like yeah. I remember when me we were kids, me and my best friend were like, I can't wait until we can drive like Nancy Drew, and then we'll be able to solve <laughs> mysteries too <laughs> And like, we had like picked up all of these, like, fi- like this this is how a, an investigator works. So like, this is the stuff we need in our car. And mm-hmm. this is how we're going to watch each other's backs. And like, it was so, so formative. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until recently where I was like, oh, okay, I should just write that kind of stuff. Not to say I can't write other stuff. But like, it's really clicked recently that what I like writing is mysteries and people investigating and people who aren't supposed to be investigating, but who do it because they have a perspective, you know, mm-hmm. and that those books, even the really generic ones, were really, really good at that. They're really satisfying to read and unravel. And I, I like when especially non-cops solve mysteries because it makes yeah. it a lot less troubling to watch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I was always attra- – sort of similarly, I was always attracted to stuff that mixed humor and levity into like high totally. stakes. Yeah, and and just – darkness because I felt like that was very much my life in a way. Like, you know, especially thinking back because I was not processing and realizing this at the time. But, you know, I I, my mom's amazing and I have an amazing relationship with her. But outside of my mom, like my whole family's a mess. Like a lot of abusive (laughs) characters and and just like a lot of there was a lot of darkness or, you know, that I was, I was in, but I also was like a funny kid and had a lot of fun and laughed and, and like humor was an escape for me. And so being able to find fun, the funny, even in the darkness was just something that was like part of my life. And that was content that I was always attracted to. And that's why things like obviously Buffy and, you know, even Scream where it's like, They're really funny characters while there's, like, a person murdering them. That's always very much appealed to me.
1: Well, I think that's – it's very much human nature that, like, a lot of people who haven't had a hard time don't really – think about I think Mm -hmm. like it's honestly it goes back to what we talked about two weeks ago in our trolls and negative reviews is that you know both of us have the tendency to take like really brutal things people say about us and make them jokes or like Mm -hmm. you know use them to market like we have a sort of a dark sense of humor and I feel like that's why we are attracted to works that are serious like because I I don't like watching just straight comedies Mm -hmm. like I have a hard time with things like always sunny or like a lot of the like cartoon like Archer and stuff just because like it's just about the comedy and that's not enough for me I need darkness mm-hmm. but i i don't find the darkness relatable or like easy like useful to navigate if mm-hmm. someone's not making a joke you know or yeah. if somebody's not like hey is it crazy that this is how you know like i need some moment of that because i think that that's That's, that's truer to me. Like, I don't want to just watch brutality. And I don't want to just watch, you know, humor, I want to watch a blend, which feels more realistic to me, I I get frustrated when people don't react in ways that feel motivated by either their characterization, as I have come to understand it, and the way that I understand human nature to be. And for me, that is best exemplified in a show like Buffy, where it's like, right. I can still care that my hair is getting messed up because I have to go to the dance later and also care about the fact that the vampires are going to kill everybody, mm-hmm. you know? yeah, That I understand it 100%. I have been in like really big crisis situations and then realized, oh, fuck, I forgot to send that email. I better go do that. You know, that's just, right. yeah, <laughs> that's how it is. And I, I, I find that much more amusing to watch and write same
0: yeah and I I mean I grew up definitely watching some sitcoms because my mom one thing that we would do would be watching like the the um, Thursday night NBC lineup when I was really young and so sure. a lot like I didn't get a lot of the jokes because I was like seven but you know we were watching you know like friends and Seinfeld and will and Grace like that whole lineup. And then even later, like, I started to seek out more inclusive sitcoms, and some of them are still my favorites, like Living Single is one of my favorite shows ever. But it's really not what I write because I find sitcoms are so, you are, you're like, you're trapped by the fact that you can't get too serious, you can't get too dark, and these characters need to remain they are they can't grow like they they have to stay in the box that they originated in and and that's why i always think most sitcoms overstay their welcome like you know yeah if you're not done by five seasons like you're just really terrible. (laughs) I can't think of a single sitcom where I was like, oh, wow, it's like nine years in and still excellent. And I,
1: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, especially because the characters can't grow. That's definitely something that's frustrating. Like, I remember watching Glee. I wouldn't consider Glee to necessarily be something that shaped me, although it was Mm -hmm. like, it was the thing we did in college. We would watch Glee together. But something that was always frustrating about Glee is that people just sort of like reset at the end of each season. Mm -hmm. Like, so they would grow during the season and then they would reset because the show didn't really know what to do but like it realized that the caricatures that it created were not like they were not sympathetic characters we we didn't, okay. we didn't like them we couldn't root for them because mm-hmm. at a certain point it was like this is a caricature but there's right. like real shit happening around them but like I don't know what that show was doing but like <laughs> that was always something that was frustrating to me is that like they would just factory reset at the end of every <laughs> season and it's like well then what was the point of that
0: yeah so. I mean I think that's a flaw of Ryan Murphy's writing in general is that he creates caricatures and they're like pretty funny and enjoyable initially but then it just gets old and like he doesn't well the glee
1: pilot is one of the best pilots i've ever Mm -hmm. seen but like it should have been a movie yeah frankly it should have been a movie and then maybe some like cast albums (laughs) like maybe they they become like the now this of pop music right right yeah i don't i don't i i think that they definitely function better as movies
0: one thing i also wrote down which was is more of like a personal influence than necessarily the work I make, Uh, was the show A Different World, which was from the early 90s, but I became a huge fan through reruns when I was a kid. I don't know
1: if I've heard of this one. It's
0: about a bunch of like 20-year-olds, basically on a college campus, and it's specifically a black college. And it was just like kind of like a dramedy. It was half hour episodes, so it was mostly a sitcom, but they would handle like heavy issues sometimes. And the first season is like, Meh. And it's also by Bill Cosby, but then the second season onward had a new showrunner. You may recognize her name, Debbie Allen. She came, took over the show in the second season onward. It was a real influence on me because like, it was the first time I saw a lot of representation and a lot of like complicated issues discussed. And in particular, there was a character named Fred who she was biracial and she was an activist and she was kind of like a little bit of a caricature in how much she was an activist because she was like always railing against the patriarchy and always like railing against like m- eating meat and stuff. But I was thinking back on myself as a child and I was very much like an obnoxious, preachy activist. And that very much comes from Fred. Like that is, I I was very influenced by her. Fred, I think made it socially acceptable to be like different and to be someone who speaks out that was a character that very much shaped me. Um, and it's still a great show. I would say like it's a, it still holds up. So if you want to go check that out, that's a good one. Um, um
1: something other books just to wrap up the book section for me. obviously, Harry Potter, huge for me mm-hmm. because like I was a bossy, nerdy, bushy haired <laughs> brunette, and I mostly hung out with boys. So like Hermione Granger was always gonna be my girl. and for a long time I do I do think though that it gave me like, the wrong impression, like, because Hermione very much felt like, for most of the books, like, quote, unquote, one of the guys. And like, it was cool that she was sort of like the only girl. And even though like the books were occasionally like, especially the boy characters were occasionally sort of condescending to her because she had girly interests. The books always seemed sympathetic to her and like, let her do that. But also like her core function was like she was the smurfette, you know, she was the Mm -hmm. token girl. And I think I did internalize that in the wrong way for a while um because it was such a trope and because i was already leading that way as like a tomboy i think it it hurt my relationships with other women to only see representations of myself as the girl rather than one of you know many Mm -hmm. girl characters Mm -hmm. and so i think that it both validated things that people bullied me about but also continued to like keep me, you know, from having meaningful relationships with other women, because Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to relate to them. I knew how to be the girl in a group of boys. Like I have that down pat, but I don't know how to, you know, I, for a long time, I didn't know how to relate to women other Mm -hmm. than like my best friend who I'd known since I was five and who I just had the history with. So like, I do think that that's something that like both helped and hurt and mm-hmm. and it also helped and hurt my writing as well, because like for a long time, it was like all boy characters and then the one girl and the girl was the protagonist. Mm-hmm. But like, <laughs> what what are we doing here? Like, are we perpetuating this? There can only be one girl in every group of guys like that sucks. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I actually credit The Princess Diaries. Did you ever read that? The Princess Diaries series? No by Meg Cabot. I think it's one of the best written YA series of all time. Um and it's epistolary, so like that was big for me. That was hugely formative not just in my writing but in my eventual filmmaking and like found footage. Like I find primary source storytelling to be really really interesting because you get to grow with the character and like you're hearing directly from them and that was something that really appealed to me, but that was a books. Those were books that like were unapologetically feminine. Mm-hmm. She had like almost all girlfriends with like one or two guy friends up in there. And like, she was super girly and like really cared about like popularity and things like that. And like, despite the fact that for a long time, I was like, I can't relate to this. I could, because we were, both teenage girls going through a lot of stuff and I loved that you know towards the end like the the last books didn't come out until I was like at the end of high school but I loved that you know it was never apologetic about that it was never like sorry this is a girl book like it it just Mm -hmm. it was a book about a teenager and I think that they are so funny and so dark and so weird and such well plotted books for being just diaries and, like, notes and emails passed back and through, back and forth between people. And Mm -hmm. that definitely, like, the way that the humor and the drama intersected and the way that people could be more than one thing, even, like, being told about by an unreliable narrator, I thought it was, it's, I mean, I wrote my college thesis on it. (laughs) Like, I think Mm -hmm. it's incredible.
0: Yeah. Wow. I mean, I didn't read very many young adult um, series like that I did read Harry Potter and of course I did I mean I like loved Hermione but I don't feel I didn't like extremely identify with her and I don't she wasn't one of the formative ones I also read it I mean I'm a little bit older than you so like the first one came out when I was 10 and I didn't read it until maybe two years later so like, yeah
1: I, it came out for me when I was like eight years old and then mm-hmm. I basically grew up with the books from there
0: right I mean, around that time when I was, like, very young, I was reading probably, like, Judy Bloom, a lot of those early Judy Bloom books. But those weren't, you know, be- very influential on me except maybe the fact that, like, I was the last of my friends to get my period. And I- so I really related to, like – Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, I was the first. I I was – super early i was the first girl that had to have a bra hated that too
0: mm. one of the big ones for me in middle school book wise was joan larry nixon who was a mystery mm. writer she would she wrote i her, the first one i read from her was a deadly game of magic and it was i don't know if a, i read that one what else like, did she write teenagers are coming back from some like sports something and their car breaks down and so they have to go knock on this door and these this, these two guys let them into the house, and it turns out that they were robbing the house, I think, and so they just kind of disappear. And now they're just like in this house that has no uh, no electricity, and it turns into like a creepy story. And I took it out from the library, and then became hooked on her books after that. And they were always like titles like um, The Name of the Game was Murder, and There were always murder mysteries and usually would make you think that there was a, a, like a supernatural cause, but it really was humans. Most of the time it was really just humans.
1: Her name sounds so familiar to me. I know I read some of these books. I think other than, like, the big franchise YA mysteries, like Nancy Drew, Cam Jansen, Encyclopedia Brown, I think I read as many other mystery books as I could. Like, that Mm -hmm. that was my thing from the beginning. Same.
0: I was all about, even in high school, then I just read a lot of mysteries that were, you know, typical bestsellers. Like, they were fine, but nothing that was very influential. There was one particular period, though, where... There was a break in mystery reading. Uh, so it was like 11, 12, all mysteries, Joan Larry Nixon, and then 14 onward, lots of just like generic bestseller mysteries. But 13 was the year I discovered V.C. Andrews. I don't know if you know V.C. Andrews. I don't She's, think I do. She was most famous for the book Flowers in the Attic. Mm. Do you know that, that book? I don't think I do. It's interesting because it came out in the 70s and it's like one of those books where every 13-year-old girl was reading it, but it was like salacious and like people thought 13-year-old girls shouldn't be reading it. And then I feel like every generation, you know, in the 80s and then the 90s, same thing. And I, I no one else I knew was reading it. So I was like maintaining a pattern, but like not for my generation. But it's like a really gothic horror-ish, but more like melodrama. Hmm. And I got like really sucked into this dark story. And I mean, in hindsight, 13 was like a very specific period in my life where without getting into too much family drama, like I had to basically raise my two younger cousins and every day after school, and I had to see an uncle who was abusive. And it was a really like traumatic year of my life in particular. And I think that there was real like catharsis in reading about a girl my age who was literally locked in an attic and had to deal with an abusive family member and had to raise her younger siblings. Like, that was very much a parallel. But after that, I then started, like, consuming all of V.C. Andrews' books. And then I started to realize, like, she had a very weird pattern of, like, incest constantly being in her books. And it was always, like, a young girl finds out she's actually from this, like, rich shitty family it became very repetitive and then i later realized that she actually only wrote i think five or six of them and then died and then a ghostwriter just kept like replicating the pattern of her books. interesting yeah <laughs> and it was a man who was the ghostwriter and that's like of part of why i found them so repetitive but she had a huge fan base i mean that ghostwriter is still writing books wow <laughs> of under her name and they're like the same kinds of stories but That was a period of, like, a year where I just became immersed in her world of, like, seedy, trashy rich people and, like, the poor teen girl who, like, suddenly gets sucked into that world.
1: Yeah, I had a a similar break in mysteries where, like, once I was in middle school, because, like, elementary school, there were some rough, like bullying things that happened to me. But largely, like, it was everything was fine. I was too young to really, like, understand what was happening. So like, it was kind of okay. And then middle school happened. And middle school was like, the worst time of my life. Like, nothing family, thankfully, you know, I I have that privilege, certainly. Uh, But at school was just like a nightmare. So like my phase between like mysteries and like kind of coming back to it was fantasy. Like, Mm -hmm. I did not want to be here. (laughs) I did not want to be in reality at all. So, like, you know, Harry Potter was obviously very helpful for that. But also, like, um, Aragon and Lord of the Rings and, like, Orson Scott Card before I knew what his deal was. And like just like all these big epic like fantasy trilogies and like uh, also Tamora Pierce in this time was when I started getting into her. She writes like a ton of like medieval um, inspired fairy fantastical fantasy stuff like female knights and things like that. So like I got super into like very detached from reality stuff. Like I think Mm -hmm. I eventually kind of came back to the to Earth, but like I I still like fantastical like supernatural elements, but I came to appreciate grounding them like we were kind of talking about with Buffy in reality. So like once Mm -hmm. my life stopped (laughs) sucking so much, I was like, okay, I can set things in the real world again. And like I think Twilight was sort of the come down from like the big, you know, there are dragons and we're on totally different planets (laughs) stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's other books I don't even remember that like I read tons of and they were all very fantastic. And stuff. But like Twilight was kind of my bridge back to kind of contemporary fantasy of like putting fantastical things into a more familiar setting and -hmm. like taking the cool stuff from that but not having to do quite as much world building um Uh and so then i came back down with twilight which i was obsessed (laughs) i read the first twilight book i think 17 times back to back like i finished it the first time and then just started reading it again like i would read it in class i would read on the i would read it everywhere like i would just i would finish it and i'd go back and i'd start it again Mm -hmm. (laughs) like truly like (laughs) just out of my mind i
0: never read twilight i was too (sighs) old i think i think i mean yeah i mean of course a lot of adults like read them too so it's not totally my mom liked them but i was but you know i like romance novels are not really my thing and mine either really and it was like too silly i think also i was turned off by the fact that it was written by this like woman who seemed to really abide by gender rules and like it is not. Well, it was
1: complicated for me because she's Mormon, but like a lot of my friends were Mormon. my best friend mm-hmm. is Mormon and still is because uh, I grew up in Western Colorado, like I'm right next to Utah, everyone mm-hmm. I knew was Mormon. So it didn't seem out of like, left field to have a Mormon writing a book. And like, mm-hmm. when you don't have good analysis skills, it's just like, oh, this is a nice romance. Sure. And like, there's still, to this day, there are blogs from me back in high school where I'm like defending Twilight. And I still <laughs> stand by a lot of the defenses but -hmm. i also think that like they are similarly naive to a lot of the critiques of twilight from back in the day but yeah i had like a really long twilight phase because i think it was you know in uh, outside of the like finally the unloved girl is is like finds love and it's fantastical and she's chosen all of these things like you know that's of course some some teenage girl bullshit but like Mm -hmm. I think what else I liked about it is that like similar to the Buffy sort of thing it's like it's a real story there are things she's dealing with at school that I relate to but Mm -hmm. then when the school plot gets boring we can hop over to something more interesting you know or like the tension of trying to maintain two lives and like the melding of that I just I really enjoyed the way that that all got put together and how Mm -hmm. like you can add world building in but like it doesn't you don't need to fully research and like create a whole new place you know you can kind of pick and choose what details you care about and what you don't and that appealed to me I think I will also say though um, Stephanie Meyer wrote another book I don't know what she's doing recently but she wrote another book called The Host that I really like that like Mm -hmm. I think stands up um, and it's like about this alien species that's basically like it's basically a parasitic species, and they, like, take over worlds by, like, inhabiting the uh, native species and, like, slowly but surely, like, replacing them. And that's also a, a, a probably one of my earliest, like, post-apocalyptic inspirations, because obviously that's a big theme for me. My My favorite type of media, like... Hands down, is where resources are limited, and the characters have to be really clever to survive, to accomplish a goal. Like I'm, I'm I really like. I mean, my other podcast co-host, Chris, calls it competence porn, and it's totally true. (laughs) I love watching smart, driven people figure it out. Like, Mm -hmm. I like when they don't have a lot going for them. You know, like, my favorite episodes of Burn Notice, which I didn't put on this list, but actually should be a major (laughs) um, inspiration of mine, because, like, for the first six or seven years of like my serious writing career once I stopped doing fantasy stuff um, is spy novels. I wrote, I have a trilogy of spy novels that will never see the light of day and that was what I worked on for like six years because I love spy stuff. But like my favorite episodes of Burn Notice are the ones where they get thrown into a situation that they weren't anticipating. Like they didn't have time to like plan out their attack. They just sort of like show up somewhere and all of a sudden shit gets real and they have to sort of improvise their way out. Those are Mm -hmm. always the best episodes because Mm -hmm. I find that reveals a lot more about character because like you really don't know somebody's character until you see them under pressure and also you see them problem solve which I find to be a much more interesting sort of interaction it, it it like the tension is ramped up because like you're underprepared but you still have to figure it out i don't know but like that's like that is my thing and so mm-hmm. apocalypse narratives obviously really appeal to that because you know lack of resources having to figure out how to survive in spite of it mm-hmm. you know fi- stripping characters down to like their most base instincts and seeing what they do to each other so i i would say yeah you the the host is actually probably more influential on me than Twilight ever was, because I don't really Mm. write romance. I write, like, the romances are incidental, Mm. not necessarily the point.
0: Going back to TV, one of the biggest things that, it's always in my bio, and because it's, like, probably the biggest influence on me, is The Twilight Zone, Mm. which was a show in the 60s, an anthology series in the 60s by Rod Serling, and I would watch it on the sci-fi network and specifically on the 4th of July and New Year's Eve they still play I don't think they played on the 4th of July anymore but they definitely still do New Year's Eve they would have a 24-hour marathon of episodes and I mean that like if you watch like my overall body of work and you're like oh totally you can see it because twists every episode had a twist and every episode had like a theme or subtext that was an issue or just like a condition or an emotional state that was being explored through an allegory of some kind. And like that is very much what I like to write and, and the kind totally. of work that I do.
1: That also makes a lot of sense in terms of like, because I've always been amazed how many shorts you can make that are like totally independent of one another. And I'm like, I don't know how you can just think in that. But like knowing that you come from like uh, anthology storytelling makes a ton of sense because yeah. like the ability to tell a self-contained story that has a thematic structure and character Growth, but like doesn't need to be longer than it is, mm-hmm. is is something that I don't have because I never watched that. I I'm, only, I'm exclusively read or watched like series where you mm-hmm. got to see them grow. But that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, I mean I love standalone short pieces, and it obviously is because of a love of that show. And and I a big part of my work is like rewatch value is things that you can catch on a second or third totally. watch that. Is leading you to the end, but like doesn't give it away, and that's that training very much comes from the Twilight Zone because like I could watch the same episodes every year. They you know there are favorites that they show every year, and I would notice something new every time because I now knew the ending, you know, sure. and and even beyond the Twilight Zone, like I also watched Tales from the Crypt, which was also an anthology of horror and actually for my age group was Are You Afraid of the Dark on on Nickelodeon, SNCC, I think it was called. And and so I was very much interested in that kind of writing and storytelling. And I'm so glad that that's sort of having a comeback now because as someone who really does want to get paid to write, I'm not so interested in like staffing on a show that's, you know, in its fourth season and everything's like clearly defined and you just kind of have to maintain the voices of these existing characters. I'm much more interested sure. in like short form storytelling where it's like, I'm gonna tell you a condensed and contained story and and kind of surprise you in some way or, or play with your expectations in some way. And and so, yeah, I mean, Twilight Zone is, is, is a big one. And then I also, uh, my first like understanding of a director and like a consistent point of view through a series of films, that would be Tim Burton who unfortunately, has, like, proven to be pretty problematic, especially when it comes to- Oh, what to- <laughs> has he
1: done? I don't know if I-
0: People, someone, so someone asked him why he doesn't cast people of color as main characters, and he was basically like, like, why? Like, I don't want to. Like, who cares? <laughs> like, and which was, like, especially hurtful because he made content about, like, outcasts and weirdos, and I think sure. that people of color, in particular, like, speaking as one, I- that really resonated with me because I was othered so much, and- And that's part of why I loved his work, and so for him to say that is, and like, and it was in 2018 or 2019. It was very recent, and so it's just like, (gasps) go the fuck away. I'm not, I don't enjoy any of his recent work, and I think he has become like sort of like a regurgitation of himself. But his like early stuff, the kind of like weird, macabre mixing of like playfulness and and darkness, was very, very influential, and it was my first like I said, understanding of like, oh, this is the same person behind these things that I loved. Like, I, you know, I really love Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. And I also really love Nightmare Before Christmas, even though he didn't direct that one, but like it has a similar vibe. And and so that was, that's definitely, it was influential because it was like, A, seeing that there is a consistent sort of vision and tone across one person's work. And B, it just like was a blending of, you know, weirdness and darkness and playfulness that that you also probably do see in my work.
1: Definitely. I I, the last couple of things that I wanted to touch on of things that inspired me, uh, the book The Last Days of Summer. It was written by Steve Kluger. It was it is my favorite book of all time. It is also an epistolary novel, although a little bit more um, varied in form than Princess Diaries. Like Princess Diaries is pretty much the main character's diary, and then occasionally like notes that they'll write back and forth to each other in the diary, and then later on like some emails. But Last Days of Summer is like it's told in baseball scorecards it's told in article clippings it's told in like reports from doctors like and then also letters but um it's it was another example of like really interesting formatting for story and i'm like i'm a big fan of like structures and like finding stories within structures it's a really well done historical piece but also like the central theme is about like love of baseball and i don't like baseball i have no opinion on baseball but like when i read that book i am like i got to go to a baseball game <laughs> like i got to go get a hot dog i'm obsessed with baseball and i just loved the way that not only did that story really f- focus on form and do something really inventive with it. But it also taught me like, there is a lot you can do to make people care about something that they wouldn't otherwise care about. If -hmm. you make the characters really compelling, and you do your research and like, you know, it doesn't matter if it's if the details are unrelatable, the fact that people care about the details so much is what people will respond to. And as long as like, the story is about the people, and not about like, this is how you play baseball, then you know, things are a lot more relatable than you might otherwise think that they are so don't Mm -hmm. limit yourself if you are obsessed with something that's fine figure out a way to incorporate it it's not gonna like make you too niche Mm. um and that was something that was really important to me uh and then (laughs) i put a few good men which remains my favorite movie of all time (laughs) because just from a dialogue perspective Mm. and also like you know i i arguing Arguing is a big part of my work. (laughs) Yeah. You could say Sam and Pat is just a series of episodic arguments between two (laughs) characters. And I mean, you know, Sorkin is Sorkin, but he's an excellent dialogue writer. And like the way that he can tell so much in a conversation, like, and then of course later Amy Sherman Palladino, like Mm -hmm. just the, it's like music, the way that those characters talk. And that's, that's what I want to do.
0: Yeah. To bring up, I mean, Amy Sherman Palladino was big for me too because Gilmore girls I I started watching and I remember in the second season and I was maybe 11 at the time and it was the first time I saw a single mom on TV mm. which like so that that in and of itself was just like oh I feel seen but then of course they're like rich white people from Connecticut so that was sure. not feeling seen but yeah like the the way the the dialogue is like a melody you know the the timing that was very very influential on me as as well and it's interesting because like you know people don't see my writing in my work quite as much because i do make shorts so much that are more like plot driven and then outside of summit which is like such an early example of my writing i mean i was 21 when i wrote it and like it probably never should have been made (laughs) um like so that's you know that's really it and then i have but i have a bunch of scripts that are just like unmade but i i hope to get them out there or, or write in some way. And, and so it's interesting because I think anyone who's very familiar with my work probably isn't aware of like the, the humor in my writing, uh, but like Game Brunch, my short that will, you know, be coming out this year is probably the best example of, of that, or like in a short, you can see it. Yeah. Like Amy, Amy Sherman palladino was, was a big one. And also just like a woman, like so, so many of my examples were Men, especially in TV and movies, like that's all I saw, and I wasn't necessarily consciously aware of it at the time that like all my favorite things were made by men because a because lot of most it still things starred were made women. by men. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> uh, and a lot of it still starred women. And so there was still like this level of like, oh, you know, I didn't quite know yet how much it mattered who was telling the story, you know.
1: Yeah. But you don't uh, really learn that until later. Like it's it you can feel something is off, mm-hmm. but then like later on, you're like, oh, now I can articulate what's going on. And it's a woman is speaking or a woman is talking, but a man is speaking.
0: Right. Exactly. So another big one was the movie The Craft. And really, anything witchy was was big for me.
1: And yeah, and then the,
0: and then like of course horror movies, the sci fi network in general. That's like the last thing I'll talk about is we didn't have like HBO or any of the bigger you know cable channels, but we did have like TBS and TNT and and uh, and of course sci fi. And so. I was constantly, that was a lot of how I discovered movies was through like, you know, TBS in particular would play like early 90s movies. But then uh, the sci-fi network is how I saw a lot of monster movies that are still some of my favorites today, like Alien and The Thing and Jaws even. And and so it's interesting because like, I think the Twilight Zone trained me to want to look for subtext and things, even when there wasn't subtext. And so... I would watch, you know, Alien and The Thing and take away like sort of things that weren't necessarily there. Like part of, I think Alien is one of my favorite movies ever. And my favorite reading of it is as, as like a metaphor for having to carry a baby to term after being raped. And like that that's that you could that that's my favorite interpretation of that and like there's no way that Ridley Scott intended that but but like that is one way you could watch that movie and have it resonate in like a very different way and have a mission and a message and like have it be very pro choice and 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 so i think that the combination of like watching a show that was very much about allegory and metaphor trained me to look for that and stuff that was just like fun monster movies or like fun horror movies. And that's not to say that they didn't have, like, subtext or, or intentions that, that were bigger than just the plot. But I was, like, really trained to look for things that resonated with me. And and so it's, like, no surprise that that's very much my work then as, like, a combination of those two things. Cool.
1: Yeah. Basically, everything that you've mentioned I have not seen, which is so funny. <laughs> it says a lot about, like, who we are as creators <laughs> as well, I think. Uh, so I guess the final thing that I wanted to, to bring up is, like, my, what I consider, like, The show that I think about most in terms of what I want to do as a TV writer is Scrubs. Like, obviously, Gilmore Mm. Girls is up there and and Buffy and everything. But Scrubs is the one that I watch the most. And a lot of it solidified for me when I listened to a podcast episode with Bill Lawrence, the creator, who he talked about how um, the the network really didn't want the th- either the second or third episode to go on as written because in like either the second or third episode the, the sort of like framing device for the episode is that the doctor the, there's a statistic that like one in every three patients that goes to a hospital dies mm-hmm. and uh, each of the three main doctors in the show had a patient that episode and so like there was a clear implication like one of them was going to die but mm-hmm. then at the end of the episode all of them die because like the sort of mm-hmm. point is like statistics mean nothing you know some Sometimes you just can't control it, you know, and it, it's that's something you have to come to grips to as a doctor if you're going to make it. And the network really wanted them to either stick to just one person dies. But they then when Bill Burns is like, no, they all have to die. Like the re, it's really important to me that the rea- like the, the life and death stakes of this show are there. Like this is not mm-hmm. like a fun like everyone lives hospital show. He's like, mm-hmm. it's a comedy, but it's set in a real hospital. And they're like, okay, well, what about what if only one of them dies? But like, they're like a Nazi or like a racist and it's fine. And he's like, no, they're going to be good people. Like one of them is going to be kind of annoying, but he's like, but they're, they're going to be good people because good people die. And like, Mm -hmm. there was this huge back and forth and he finally won. And I think that like that ethos is so, so, so like something I respect so much. And it, it speaks to you like in the third episode of this like quirky comedy show where like every other scene is one of the doctors having these wild fantasy sequences. They're just going to kill a bunch of really good people because They're sick that happens in hospitals sometimes and watching the yeah. characters deal with that. I was like, that is, that's that's a ballsy move first of all to just take like a traditional, like, you know comedy sitcom format mm-hmm. and like take you there. But I think it's one of the best examples of a show that so well balances like really absurd, fun, hu- goofy mm-hmm. humor with like really grounded storytelling and character work. And like those characters do grow like even from yeah, like episodes do. to episode yeah. they do. And I just think it's such a masterclass of like tonal balancing and character work. Like I think Elliot Reed is one of my favorite TV characters of all time time, she's time cool. because she's yeah. so annoying. But like you start to like very early on, like you respect her because she's so ambitious and like there's something that you just got to love about an ambitious woman. But then as she learns to like understand her own privilege and her own place in the world and like how she relates to her colleagues and her friends and like her growth from season one to like the end of the series is incredible. It's so well done and it never feels grating or unearned like it just that they were so thoughtful and so balanced in the way that they, like, used tone and, like, plot and all that. And it's just, I think it's it's one of, it, I, it's my favorite show of all time. But, mm-hmm. like, it's just, it's it's very aspirational. Anytime, like, a big thing happens to me and I need to, like, take some time to process, I rewatch Scrubs. Because it reminds me, like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. I love
0: it. Scrubs was probably still on. I think it was still on when I discovered it. But it was probably, like, so- five seasons in already I started watching reruns on Comedy Central and like that when I was like 15 um 15 or 16 and I really liked it and yeah I do think it's a great like a great example of tone blending for sure and like character growth without losing the comedy and without losing sort of the the dynamics between characters
1: yeah i think something it does really well is that like the character flaws even though the characters learn to manage them better like one of um one of elliot's like primary you know character flaws is that she's like super insecure and thinks without speaking Mm -hmm. and like that's still very much present when you know she's grown and like Mm -hmm. it still comes out but like the it isn't about like that's everything you know so it's like she she's still the same character she's just matured in the way that she deals with her own personality and I think that that's the thing that a lot of these a lot of TV shows that have like deeply flawed characters like have a hard time with is finding ways to let the characters still be themselves while also being better versions of themselves and I think Scrubs is one of the only shows that I've ever seen successfully do that like I think even Gilmore Girls like later seasons I mean we can talk about later seasons of Gilmore Girls yeah. all day <laughs> but like I do think that something that they struggled with is that some of the characters didn't seem to like Rory doesn't really seem to grow up <laughs> yeah like you know doesn't. she's perfect as a child and then when she gets older she's just childish you know yeah, and yeah. so like the drama is going to come from like basically the same place over and over again and like even Lorelai as she grows as a person like is consistently making the exact same mistakes over mm-hmm. and over again yeah. and not doing it in a different way next time and like that does get tiring after a while
0: mm-hmm. yeah I mean we're also watching because i started watching when I was a kid Rory was like just too obnoxiously perfect where it's just like who can even relate to this person <laughs> <laughs> yeah we like we could get into a whole thing about Gilmore Girls like if
1: you guys like we Christine and I have talked about like doing more episodes where we sort of talk about works that we like or dislike or whatever and like we we talk about specific works in more detail so if that's something you guys would be interested in uh let us know you know, maybe we'll do a, a yes. deep dive on Gilmore Girls later seasons or like, you know, we'll take an aspect of something we both really are obsessed with and like unpack it or something. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's something you guys would be interested in. Let us know.
0: Yes, please do. One last thing I want to say, which is not quite a piece of work, but I just recently watched The Last Blockbuster, which is a documentary. It's on Netflix and it's about the last blockbuster that in exists. In Oregon, right? Yeah. And the documentary was fine, like it was good for the nostalgia, but it reminded me of like how influential Blockbuster was to my childhood and like my really wanting to be a filmmaker because we would, we would obviously go with my mom, you know, we would rent a movie every once in a while. But when I became old enough to walk to Blockbuster myself with my friends when I was like 12 onward that became like a thing and every Friday night when I was in high school from the time I was 14 till when I graduated every single Friday night my friends would come over and we would get a horror movie from Blockbuster and it was like yeah it was me and three of my friends Yvonne Santana and Margarita which I think is really funny because they all have such like <laughs> like very like movie-ish names like if you were gonna name characters and something people would like criticize you for having such like not common names as all sure. the characters. <laughs> and then sometimes also my friend Chris, sometimes Chris would also show up, but we would rent a horror movie and it was like we would go to Blockbuster and I would pick by posters. If it was a horror movie I hadn't heard of, it was like, oh, that poster looks cool. Let's watch that. And I watched a lot of independent horror movies that were really, really bad that way. <laughs> um, but it was my first exposure to independent film because... Like, that, no one was playing that on TV. Like, you couldn't watch an indie movie. And I definitely didn't know festivals existed or, like, what that world was. And so the few that would get into Blockbuster, I would watch them. And it was just, like, that was just, like, a big eye-opening experience in high school to be, like, oh, there are independent versions of movies that are made for less money and, like, theoretically I could make outside of a Hollywood system.
1: Just like Dawson. Yes. That's all I've got. <laughs> Yeah, I I think that that's probably all I have, too. I mean, I'm sure, you know, we could talk for hours just about works we liked. But I I try to pick things that I think directly translated to the types of work that i make now and like the way that i see the world and yeah this was fun i like i like talking about media with people i mean like you know i (laughs) i have a bird notice podcast and like sometimes (laughs) i complain about it and i definitely complain about it because i have to edit it and it's a weekly podcast because i hate myself but like i love doing that podcast because i love just Picking apart media with people whose taste I respect and like talking about storytelling. I think it's the most interesting thing to do in the world. So if you all agree, let us know and maybe we'll do more of this. Maybe I'll make Christina watch Burn Notice someday. <laughs> All
0: right. Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them, as always, are in our episode description. And thank you to our Booby VIPs who are $10 patrons on Patreon. Shannon Sprangler, Jules Piggott, Rain Bernal, Kelsey Rauber, Jerry Maravilla, Norman Steinberg, and Shayna Rose Woolley.
1: And remember to join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingoutpod so you get notified of all of our new episodes dropping every other Thursday, plus a bunch of bonus materials. And also please rate us five stars in your favorite podcast app if you haven't already. And if it gives you the option to do so, writing a review really goes a long way and we appreciate it every time. Next time on the podcast, we will be covering the Writers Guild, the WGA, the sa- which is the same thing, and everything in between with guest Jorge Rivera, so be sure to tune in.